Welcome to Defining Us, America's classroom where education is a revolution of the heart and mind. I'm Stacey DeWitt, executive producer of the Defining Us documentary series and digital platform. Educo is the Latin word for educate. It means to bring out and develop from within. And teachers and students across our country are doing just that. They are leading a movement focused on helping individuals and communities change from within in order to improve the most important social issues of our times, race, gender, sexuality, poverty, religious difference, and much more. Our mission is to help us all get educated on these issues. We will hear from the leading voices in education, listen to the students that are defining the next generation, and learn how we can better understand ourselves and each other to create our own revolution of the heart and mind. This is a very special podcast for many, many reasons. Paul Forbes is joining us. Paul is a great friend, somebody I met about six years ago, I think. Yeah. And um, Paul, great to have you with us today. Really, really a thrill. I'm thrilled to be here. I'm excited. To be in this format and to (laughs) have all those dreams come true. You know, all the things we talked about six years ago, it seems like they're starting to evolve and uh, we'll get into some of that throughout, but I want to get started just with you giving us um, a little bit of background, who you are, what you do, and go from there. Sure. So my name is Paul Forbes, born and raised in Brooklyn, New York City, and I've been in education all my life, Um, whether that was me being in school with a focus on my parents on education being key, um, into college, and then joined the New York City Board of Education, which became New York City Department of Education and working for 20, almost 24 and a half years um, in what I call urban education reform. I recently, we might get to that at some point, but I left um, January of 2021. So that was about a year ago. I walked away from the New York City Department of Education And so I'm currently doing independent consulting work with districts and schools, both in New York and across the country. Um, So continue to live my dream and my purpose um, doing the work that I believe I've been called to do. So you said you have been involved in urban education reform. Let's talk about that a little bit. Tell me a little bit about what that means for you, how you define that. And Paul, How have you seen it evolve over the last 25 years? You know, I, um, so I was a pre-med student, right? My, my mom was a nurse, um, West Indian parents. My mom and dad are both from St. Vincent and the Grenadines. My mom was a nurse and my dad was a pastor. And so it was a question of which way would I go? I didn't go into the ministry, um, my mom encouraged me. She always, she would always say, you should be a doctor. You, you would be a great doctor. And so I said, you know what, I'm going to be a doctor. And coming out of high school, I was on that path. But then one day I, my sister Camille, who is currently a principal in East Harlem, New York, she was at an event 
And I would go with her just to see some of the things that she was doing. I would take some time off before I would start my college life. And I, would, I had the opportunity, I was in an auditorium with her in Brooklyn and I heard a man speak. This was um, Dr. Rudy Krull, who was at that time gonna become the, the new chancellor of New York City, school system, largest school system in the country. And I was so impressed with what I heard that day that I said to my sister, I'm gonna work for that man one day. And at that moment, my trajectory changed and it was about how I look at the school systems, the things that I saw when I was in, I went to private school and public school. And so I had an opportunity to see the best and worst of both worlds. And it was interesting living in a house with siblings who were, were in public high schools while I was in a private high school to see the tales of two cities right there in the same household, right? The things that they would be exposed to and that they would get, the things that I saw at Packer Collegiate Institute. Um, I'm the class of 91, so this is last century. Um, <clears throat> but I saw the differences. And so coming into when that choice was made to begin to work in education, uh, my idea and thought was, what's the possibility to have schools in public education or public schools that reflected the same opportunities for young people who were going to private schools. Why can't we have the same? Or well, even within the same public school system, why is it that there's some schools that have and other schools that do not have in different neighborhoods? And so I think my urban education reform is idea that um, when we look at cities, especially what we constitute as the inner cities, which is when we start playing out predominantly Black, Latino, young people, what opportunities are there, historically what has not been there, and what can be done to ensure that equality and equity, when we begin to focus in, the equitable opportunities are there for all students. What's been interesting is over the last 25 years, I have seen the movement from, you know, I just used a phrase that said equality and I mentioned equity, right? Oftentimes people say, well, everybody has, and how much is given to each student, right? How much dollars and cents is allocated for each student to get the outcomes that we would like to see. And we've known there's been an inequity or disparity between those numbers, right? Of saying who gets, whether in a city, in the rural area, the suburbs. But what I've seen is that conversation going from just equality to equity. Right, the idea that because of historical context, because of what we have seen with young people and communities that have not received um, at the same levels that others have, and beginning from a starting point that is not the same as their counterparts in different neighborhoods and zip codes, people have began to understand and use an equity lens. Right, so yes, we wanna say education, public education for all, but public education has not been accessible and it has, has not been proportionately in the same place for all students. And I think that conversation has gotten to a point where 
people have began to use that lens to, to try to, to correct what has been done historically. It hasn't been perfect. It hasn't, we haven't gotten there yet. At least I've seen over 25 years how we have been um, more conscientious of it and more intentional about having a conversation that leads us to a place that we can have more equitable outcomes and results um, for our young people who have not gotten historically. So I'm going to take you back because um, really you and I met, like I said, six years ago, roughly. It was like seven, maybe. Eight, I think maybe. <laughs> <laughs> maybe it was, Paul. You're Probably aging yeah, us I'm like, no, this, this pandemic has <laughs> yeah. really taken a toll. Yeah. Um, you know, I have a vague, I have a, uh, a very vivid, I was going to say vague, a very vivid memory of standing in a school cafeteria, I think, for uh, what was sort of like a, not a trade show, but it was booths and uh, things that were going on at that yeah. time and a bunch of vendors that were there because yeah. you had just gotten the grant for the expanded success initiative. And I think that's actually the night that I met you was standing, I think it was a gym, actually, not a cafeteria. Thurgood Marshall Academy. Yeah, Thurgood Marshall yeah. Academy. Yep. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, standing in that gym and, uh, you know, with our wares, trying to figure out what was going on with this um, ESI thing that was yes. happening in New York. It was a real door opener for me, um, personally. Uh, that was the beginning mm. of a door opener for me, personally, but there was some real interesting work that was going on in the country at that time where we were at the front edge of that work with um, yeah. Sean Harper and yeah. um, succeeding in the city. Yeah, yeah. And, um, and that to me, for somebody who was not, you know, in, uh, in education for, for many decades, that was really the first time it seemed to me that we were seeing sort of an expansion across the country around equity and around asset-based learning versus this deficit thinking. So I want you to talk a little bit about what ESI is and was yeah. and the work that was being done then that we really are seeing in much broader ways now and in much greater ways now being adopted across the country and being resisted hmm. across the country. So yeah. um, let's talk a little bit about ESI and the Expanded Success Initiative and what you were charged with there first okay. and some of the work that was going on that was informing um, that project. You know, that's a lot of memories there. So I was the Senior Director of the Expanded Success Initiative, ESI. ESI was part of the, was the educational component of the Young Men's Initiative in New York City that began in 2011. The Young Men's Initiative was focused on improving outcomes for Black and Latino young men in health, justice, employment, and education. As I said, I was blessed and fortunate to be leading the educational component, ESI. At the time, it was the largest public-private partnership in the country. And that's important, right? Because for the first time, the mayor at the time, Mayor Bloomberg, um, we were seeing where people were putting their money where their mouth was, right? So they were saying, yes, we're going to make an investment. And Mayor Bloomberg, through um, his organization, um, Bloomberg Philanthropy, as the mayor of New York City, it was New York City coming together in partnership. And the third 
partner was the Open Society, George Soros and Open Society Foundation. And so you had almost $127 million being invested with the largest public-private partnership focused on improving outcomes for Black and Latino young men. It was the largest public-private partnership at the time. It has been surpassed by President Obama's My Brother's Keeper that we know of now. And I'm proud that ESI and the Young Men's Initiative was one of the initiatives that was invited to the White House to talk about what the structure was as MBK, My Brother's Keeper, was being built out. And so you mentioned Dr. Sean Harper, but I have to mention Sean Dove, who was leading the campaign for Black Male Achievement within um, Open Society Foundation, and his commitment to the idea that for so long, um, folks will look at improving graduation rates, and we were making movement. Graduation rates have been improving over the last 25, 30 years. But when we looked at the data, what we saw was that our young people, specifically and especially our Black and Latino young men, were graduating, but not graduating college and career ready. So they weren't able to take an intro to math or intro to English, their writing skills. And so there was, a, again, a disconnect of saying, women, how, how are we graduating them, but they're not prepared for the next level? Where, where is the disconnect? And so ESI looked at the schools, there were about 40 schools in New York City that was successful in graduating their young people, specifically their young men of color. And so we wanted to focus there and say, what are you doing to ensure that our young men, all young people, but especially our young men are ready to enter, persist and succeed in college and the career paths they choose. And that's where one of the first events that we had in 2000 and late in 2012 or early 2013, um, Dr. Sean Harper, who at the time was at University of Pennsylvania, UPenn, he's gonna go on to write research and a document that's called Succeeding in the City, as you just mentioned. And what was important there was we began to have a mind shift, we began to change, a paradigm shift occurred. As Dr. Harper would say, yes, one out of three young men of color would end up in the penal system, was the statistic we have, or X number would not graduate. All these negative statistics, and what he did for me, I think then was a reflection of the ESI initiative, was to say, why don't we turn that around? Yeah, maybe one out of three ends up in the penal system in some form or fashion, but that means two out of three or 66% do not. Let's find out what's working that's getting them to that place as opposed to spending our time with just a deficit-based approach. Let's get the asset-based approach and find out what is happening for the young men and young women, but specifically young men, that they're able to still navigate while they're in the same spaces as the young people who are not succeeding in that manner. And that allowed us to use or to think about, I know I can speak for myself. My approach going forward from there was, let's think about what's working and amplify those things. But all our young people, everyone is at risk for something, right? We're all at risk. And this idea is those same at-risk 
quote unquote, young people, if you put protective factors, they're able to navigate and bounce back resiliency much faster than those who just have um, um, the factors that's gonna cause them to continue down that path um, that's not successful. And so that's where the work and the focus had been. And especially for ESI, that was a mindset. What are we doing to ensure that the assets um, for each young person is magnified and lifted up, the student voice that it's magnified and that we're hearing from and they're connected with one another. And that's what we did with ESI, truly creating um, a sense of belonging, fellowship, community. We're gonna have rigor as we would have for all students and we have empathy and we have supportive structures and system and we see what gaps there are and we complement and fill in accordingly. That's the equity, again, mindset. You know, I hear you on that, Paul, and, and I think that that's where we miss. Um, sometimes in the country when you say many of the schools are continuing today, they didn't get exactly as far as they wanted to in terms of the data and the research, and we can all sort of quibble about what the numbers actually showed or what they didn't show. We can really get down in the weeds as a way to take a program and make it either more than it was ever supposed to be or not as much as it has ever was supposed to be. What's interesting, I think through that initiative for me, is that schools really are on the cutting edge of these issues. And you know, our growing edge as a country is this work moving from equality to equity, moving from thinking about being colorblind to embracing and celebrating diversity. All those transformations, which you and I talk a lot about, have gone on and are continuing. Are, we're really at the forefront now of that work. But what you guys did with ESI and what Sean Harper brought to the table with that report and, and others too, I mean, Pedro Nogueira mm -hmm. and, and Tyrone Howard and Sean Dove, lots of people that are out there, was a true narrative shift yes. and a mindset shift that began in classrooms by training teachers appropriately that now is at least part of the national conversation. Yeah. You know, I just think it would be so important right now as someone who has worked mm -hmm. with children in urban education for the last 25 years, if you can just describe for people who don't have that experience, because that is just seeing that in action, I think makes a big difference. And to hear from somebody who has been in the work for so long, just seeing through a different lens and the mindset shift, what that can do to for an individual child. Yeah. You know, just as you're asking the question and you're, you're listening to your statements, just taking me back to how much I have grown working with these tens of thousands of young people, specifically these young men. There are stories that I thought I knew. There were stories that had not been told. And these young people from all over, so in Queens, and the Bronx, Manhattan, Brooklyn, Staten Island, from just all over. And what was important was that we had this thing called young men's gatherings where we had opportunities to bring young men together. I was facilitating a workshop a couple of weeks ago and I, I said, create a word wall or word cloud in a virtual space. And I said, 
Give me some of the words that describe that have are used to describe black and Latino young men. I said not words that you use, but words that you know in society. And it didn't take long for the words to start coming out and pouring in. Thug, angry, troublemakers, um, lazy, disrespectful, oversexualized, hypersexual, um, aggressive. And with the word cloud, you, the words that are repeated by multiple people or multiple times, they're larger and you see it. So you know which ones have been repeated, even though you can't tell who's writing them. And seeing those negative words as words that have been used to describe Black Latino young men. I didn't say Black Latino young men in the inner city. I didn't say in the suburbs. I didn't, I didn't say Black Latino young men. So let's think about that, right? We don't have to say, oh, are we talking about kids who are born here? No, this is in general, right? That's been part of the narrative, not just recently, but throughout the history in this country, which is important, right? We do a lot of work at mindsets. We talk about mindset shifts and beliefs. And there's been a lot of stories. You know, the other day I, I, I tweeted out and said, we've seen so many young people who have not gotten to live out that potential because they're cut down because of beliefs that other people have. Emmett Till began that, right? We just think about it again when we say, you know, he Emmett Till would have been 80 years old a couple months ago. He would have just turned 80. You think about that and say, wow. That just happened. That was in the 50s. It's not like it was, people think it was so long ago of these things, but this is a 14-year-old boy. And what happened to him when he goes down to Mississippi from Chicago? And you just think, where are these images and ideas? Where have they come from? And how do we hold on? And that's part of the narrative, not just for people who will put them, but think about our young men and young women, but specifically our young men, that they carry that. They, they hear this as well, right? They they. And they could internalize some of that, right? They say, this is how we are seen. It's, it's important that folks understand that schools, classrooms, school communities, districts, those are places where we can effectuate change. The school becomes that place where it's a, a refuge. It's a place where so much is shared, so much is learned. And so when you speak about the school being the place and the teachers, yes, there's more than enough research that we could find and look up to talk about the influence that teachers, educators, and schools, the institutions that they have on the trajectory and outcome for so many of young people. And again, that's for all. And the equity lens is for specifically for our young men. We know the research. We know the stories. And just hearing from our from our young men, I say, you know, I, I, when I say our, I don't have any kids of my own. I saw all of these young people as my own. Um, and hearing from them as they would speak about their experiences. And again, it wasn't always negative. It was just a joy, just hearing them laugh, going to a game with them, hanging out with them, just hearing them. And it's like, these are just kids. They're kids, right? <laughs> and you've heard me say this. I see our young people as they will be, not as they are. And so that's part of the narrative. That's part of the mindset shift that has to occur. If, if, if we don't do that, we will always see them again with a certain lens and not because we're bad people. It's because what we've been exposed to and the messages and the stories that I've been told. One of my purposes and one of the reasons why I connected with you and this organization was let's get the counter narrative. Let's tell the story. Let's tell the story 
that folks can see in video, they can hear in audio. This is important because there's so many people that just don't have that opportunity and don't, and all they see is what they hear in the news or what they see, um, or what they hear on the radio or what they see in a quick clip here or there that goes viral or something happens. That becomes their lived experience because they don't know otherwise. And I say that's ignorance. But me, and for those who, as you mentioned, the Sean Harpers and the Sean Doves and the Tyrone Howards and the folks that are on the Camille Kinlocks, the folks who are putting this time in and working and saying, you know what? We are going to be part of the counter narrative. And this is important because there's other teachers and administrators who may not hear and know otherwise. And the story that I tell, succeeding in the city, stories about ESI, I can now hear and begin to think that, well, there is something that could be different and there's possibilities. But I'm just optimistic still that as folks learn and they see that they will be able to create those spaces and places in their school communities across the country. Yeah. You know, Paul, I think for me um, in ESI, it's was really uh, eye-opening for me because if you are not in the schools all day long, especially in an urban setting, if you're not in New York city public schools all day, um, you don't know what goes on there. If you're not in, you know, suburban Atlanta, in schools, you don't know what goes on there. And so part of the issue that, that happens in this country is that, you know, we're not all living next to each other and we're not necessarily all going to school together. But I think that what people need to hear is what you just said, that there's a counter narrative that's actually the truth. And the current narrative is actually a false one. I mean, you were always very careful to say, you know, stereotypes are stereotypes. And some of the reasons we have stereotypes is because part of it is true. I go back to Chimamanda Adichie, you know, who says it's a half truth. It's not the full story. That's right. right? So stereotypes exist. Yes. But what's horrific, quite frankly, for kids is that they literally harm my life. They harm my well-being. They harm my ability as a child to overcome that. And I think that that's what we're really talking about in terms of harmful narratives. People say things like, well, they're harmful narratives. They're narratives that reinforce themselves. But the reality is, is what does that really, really mean for a child? Yeah. And um, I remember in the, I was at um, Ingrid's uh, school. Um, AMS? Yeah, at AMS. And I was talking to one of the young men there and I said, you know, I'm a white woman from the South. What do you want me to know about you? (laughs) And he said, I want you to know I'm not a monster. That's right. And I remember thinking to myself, what? Wow. Wow. What just happened there? What just happened? What, where, what's informing that belief? So I think this idea of telling stories which you and I have talked about for years, this idea that you have to be able to tell your story and you have to be free to speak about that story and to speak about that identity and to have somebody hear that from your point of view. We can see transformative work that can be done when you're willing to be vulnerable, when you're willing to say, I want to learn. I want to be empathetic. I'm not going to be coming from a place where I'm going to be I bendito. I'm going to be treating you like, oh, I'm just going to, no, you see their humanity and you want to, you, there's reciprocation as they, as you allow them to see you as you are and you see them as they are. 
And this goes into, ties into what you're saying about what we're seeing today. It, it's troubling as people hear about this thing, CRT, critical race theory. With all this work that I do, I was like, oh, I'm not, we got to get out there and address this and move on. And, and then begin to realize the talking points and the ideas that, that misinformation about this, like what is critical race theory as we understand it, that's as is created, when you, as it's defined, is not what's taught, right? It's not taught in elementary. There is something that's taught. There is a CRT. It's called culture responsive teaching. So there is a CRT that's taught, right? And it's not even that it's taught, it's lived, right? It's the pedagogy. It's the way in which, as Gloria Lanson Billings would say, that's just good pedagogy. If you're a good teacher, you use a culture responsive approach because you're trying to make sure you tap into the lived experience of our young people and you bring it into the class. We don't put them at the board and say, you stay out there. You bring them in and say, this is part of and how I can connect. Again, Ingrid connected in certain ways with young people that someone else might not have. She was willing to um, listen to music that maybe wasn't her music or that she was familiar with. Same way for myself. There were times when I've been driving and um, one of the young men would say, hey, can I get the ox cord? I'm going to put my music. And I'm like, what is that? You listen to, how do you, like, but it was something about saying, you trust me and you believe in me enough to say, I will sit in this and get to know you and where you're coming from. And then we'll have conversations about that. I mean, I agree with all the lyrics, but we can have a conversation about that. That's good teaching. That's good pedagogy. That's a good teacher. This critical race theory and the way this is set out, it has become so divisive and it's become such a lightning rod and people are trying to focus it. I'm like, my concern is that, as you said, a chilling effect is that people are not doing the CRT, culture responsive teaching and pedagogy anymore. They're not connected because they're saying, I don't know if I'm to hear about your lived experience. I got to get the counter now. I got to get this. I have to get... I'm like, wait a minute. No, 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 no. That's... And maybe that's the purpose of why there are certain people for political and for other gender reasons why. Um, I, I stayed away from that because I said, I don't want to go down that rabbit hole because I think that's part of the plan is you go down here. It's like, oh, look, distraction. I don't want to be distracted because there's so much work that needs to be done, especially now as we are still in a pandemic where we are We've lost so many. We have so much grief, so much loss, so much suffering, so much distancing. This is the time when we need CRT and culture responsive teaching now more than ever. This is the time that we need to hear from our young people, regardless of race, color, creed, sub suburban, urban, rural. Doesn't matter. We need to hear from our young people and we need to hear from each other. This is the time of all times we should be doing it. This is where we should be doubling down on this concept of tell me your, your, your story. How are you? No, no, no. How are you? It's not a time for us to be staying away and saying, I can't, I'm just going to teach the content and that's it. And good luck and everything. Like, no, 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 no. This is a time where we want people to come in. And I want to hear the stories of the same folks who are promoting CRT. Tell me your story, what, what you're hurting. There's something there that's bothering you. What is it? Truly tell me what is it that you want to know. This is what we should be. Because while we're doing all of this, while I'm hearing all this, whether it's board meetings or things that go viral, I'm saying, you know who's watching? You know who's learning about from that behavior? 
our children. And this is going to be detrimental. You talk about chilling. It is chilling to the, the extent that I'm seeing in my head. I'm not even, I'm like, please, I'm not going to spend my time arguing with you. I, I'm not going to explain a negative. I'm, gonna, I'm, I, I'm not going to do that. that that's what we do. I'm not going to do that because I can't, right? But what I'm more concerned about is that the effect that it's having on so many that wants to do the right thing, that want to continue to create these spaces of community, a fellowship of, you feel like, oh, no, 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 I've been, I can't do that. I can only talk and teach this, this, that, and that's it. We can't do, historical context is important. We do need to learn that. That's part of becoming a critical thinker. We say we want to make, create a better tomorrow than what we have today, right? Well, to create a better tomorrow, there are things that have been done today and in the past that we do not want our young people to replicate in the future. Part of that is owning, like we, like we teach our little one, you make a mistake, you learn from it. How do we learn from mistakes that we say we can't even have a conversation about the mistakes? Mistakes happen. We made a mistake. There were things that we did wrong. The, the, the most egregious mistake is that we continue to perpetuate certain um, wrongs in different names, right? And so this is the work. This is the work that we actually have to be doing. And whatever that phrase is, because this isn't the first time. There's been structures and systems like this before where people have used phrases, ideas, whether it's like, oh, we got to deal with um, safety in, 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 in certain cities. Safety becomes the thing du jour and everybody wants to create more draconian laws that puts people in. Like there's always something and it's something that pulls people to say, well, we can't say this. We got to use a euphemism or something else. So now it's like, oh, Parents' rights. You ask me if parents have rights to be involved in education. I would say absolutely yes. If you're saying, oh, that's why CRT is so bad because I don't give them the right to say, no, parents should have always had the right to be in. So yes. Do I agree with that statement? Yes, absolutely. Parents and guardians should be involved in education and the say of curriculum. But then when you couch it in, oh, it's a blame and game, a blame and, and shame in game, all these things, man, we are doing such injustice and a disservice that I am, as we were just talking about going on memory lane and thinking back over 25 years of what's gotten better, I'm just, I'm concerned that if we're not careful, we could get to a point that we actually revert back and have to spend another 25 years undoing some of the damage that's being done now. The lived experience of our young people, our own lived experiences, we need to be in places where we can share so we can learn with them from each other. It was beautiful what you said when you said, I said, I'm a white woman from the South. That's a story, just that alone is a story, enough of a story that a young person could have said, well, I need you to know this. Because there's stories that come from that. As you said, there's ideas that come from it. It's not as harmful that might be for other groups, but you know that's a story. And that's the beauty of this. We need to hear and know each other's story because... Your story is going to help that young person who asked that question, I mean, who was answering that question and say, wow, I just met someone that is a counter narrative of what I always thought a white woman from the South is like. That would help him or her in how they deal with the next person they deal with. And they could transfer that same approach with how they want to work with their, as a mentor with a mentee, right? And so I, it's to your question, it is chilling. 
Um, I'm trying not to, again, spend as much time as I see many people who are getting lost and staying in the rabbit hole defending. I keep saying, let's do the work, continue doing, telling those stories, showing the results of the stories and what is possible. Um, Because otherwise, I think people will just go into a shelter and avoid these conversations at all costs. Um, And I get it. But that's not what, now more than ever, we can't have that. We can't afford to be in that place. We need to tell the story. We need to tell the counter narratives. 